Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available... On digital, Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. What I'm calling surf, surf, surf. You know, Web1... Somebody said, that's the read internet. Like, we surfed the internet. Yep. S-U-R-F. Uh-huh. Okay? Web 2 has been a right internet. We're okay. posting, we're sharing, we're writing, but we're surfing the internet. S-E-R-F. Because okay. we're all making money I'll, for I'll seven oligarchs, right? And I, the, another word that came out this week was technogarchs. Okay, so Web 3, we've got to have a new surf. So we came up with S-I-R-F. Okay. Web 3 should be about surfing the internet, and I should be in charge. I should be sovereign, so I should be sovereign, independent, responsible, and friendly. And if we can make Web3 surfing S-I-R-F, I think that would be a really great outcome. You're listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined with Michael Casey and Sheila Warren. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey and I am here with my co-host Sheila Warren. Now, don't forget to subscribe, give us a thumbs up or leave a review. We value your feedback. Please share your thoughts with us at podcasts at coindesk.com using the subject line Money Reimagined. We look forward to hearing from you. And of course, you can tune in every week to catch us on the Coindesk Podcast Network or find Money Reimagined feed on Apple, Spotify or any of your preferred podcast platforms. Sheila, we are going to wrap up our conversation around Davos today, where you know we were, and I think you know sometimes we run the risk of elevating the importance of that little town in the yeah. middle of, of Switzerland. But I just felt like some of the conversations that were going on there, for me at least, in terms of the intersection of crypto and the big sort of digital societal questions that were starting to rapidly bubble up around AI and everything, made it seem like an, a more relevant and urgent conversation for this community than I've seen it before. Um, yeah, well, I'd say, you know, venue aside, and I do think we run the risk of over-indexing on, on the location, but that being said, you know, it is one of the times that a lot of the Web3 community does come together, and it is at the start of the year. And so it's a chance to see what people have been talking about in their silos, and is there continuity or consistency across that? And I think both you and I were quite struck by how the conversation has shifted and changed not just over time from, you know, the first time we were together in Davos years ago, seven years ago, whatever it was, but also uh, just in the last few months, in the last almost quarter, and things you and I have been talking about, including on the show for a long time, 
have suddenly caught up and are kind of being mainstreamed within the Web3 ecosystem. Uh, and I do think this chat with Stan is emblematic of conversations that were happening all over the promenade and, and all the places that you and I you know, found each other, uh, You know, whether it was Crypto Valley, Hedera, Circle, uh, the Filecoin Sanctuary. There were so many different locations on the promenade where this this was at least a part of the thread of the conversation, if not the main focus. Now, as we've talked about in, in last week's episode, the contrast, I think, that the sort of powers that be, if you will, the non-Web3 sort of folk uh, do, uh, this is where my hamburger analogy, which got a lot of traction and Davos <laughs> comes to play, right? So I was saying, you know, we tend to talk in the policy arena and in sort of like non-business, the government does tend to talk about technology as if it's siloed. So you have you know, lettuce, tomatoes, the bun, the meat, whatever it is. And you look at those and say, well, we should regulate AI and we should regulate digital assets and we should regulate, we should think about quantum and et cetera. And cybersecurity is a critical thing. But at some point, you got to realize all of those are components of the hamburger and you got to talk about the hamburger. <laughs> so uh, I came up with that one on stage because I was very hungry, which right. is- a- Really, that, that was off the top of your head. It was just informed by a rumbling belly. I'm impressed. So wherever you can get your inspiration from, Sheila. You know, I was just yeah. very hungry. And it, it, again, food it's a food desert in Davos, which is a thing. Yeah, people- you know, there's not many hamburgers, I must say. I have not, did not buy- I've eaten even all sorts of weird and interesting dishes, but I don't remember eating a hamburger. That's true. Pizza and fondue, of course. But at some um, point, you know, these things go together, and tech is not built in a silo. Right. And it's not that somebody that can code, you know, Solidity can code, you know, AI like, can can code can can build a, a learning a language learning model. But regardless, I think all these things are going to interoperate meaningfully. Yeah. And looking at them in isolation misses the broader. It, it's it's such a good point, and it's a point that I think also came up in some of the regulatory conversations we had about. Right, where regulators want to name things, they want to like isolate. This is a this, and that is a that. And you know, and I've had this very thought again. It's about Web three and AI. The siloing also leads to the way that investment decisions are made, and how how Silicon Valley structures all of its you know portfolios and and so forth. And when Web three was having its you know down moment because nobody was happy with you know the fact that the NFT bubble had burst and there was all this hot air around everything else. You were seeing, oh God, all these VCs are now shifting their attention from Web3 to AI. And I actually think I, I wrote a piece at the time just saying, wait, why are those two things mutually exclusive? Uh, We've and, been sounding this drum for a while because I think yeah, it yeah. is so silly. It is so silly. Well, the whole thing is also Web3 is a buzzword. Yes, I get it. It was a bad buzzword. But it literally is the description of the solution to the problem we face, which is Web frigging too. Like it is. We know that Web 2 is a problem. We know this over and over again. We've been talking about it for ages and ages and ages that this, these controls and, 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 and Stan Stolnaker, the founder of Hub Culture, whose interview I had that we're going to listen to in a moment, encapsulates some of this right now. Yeah. But it is literally this problem of, of Web 2 being broken. So, okay, what's going to be next? Well, surely it might have some name, but Web 3 is a reasonable name for the next phase of what our internet needs to be. By the way, once again, shameless plug, it's also what books are all about, Yes, uh, our, our biggest fight. But this is really such an important conversation. And this annoying kind of compartmentalization and categorization is really, yeah, let's get to the hamburger. Let's get to it. Time. It's time. It's hamburger. On that note, <laughs> let's, have a, let's have a listen to Stan and some of my interview with him. Let's do it. Hi there, Michael Casey, Chief Content Officer at Coindesk here in Davos again. And every time I come to Davos, I, I like to check in with my friend Stan Stalnaker, the founder of Hub Culture, the oldest social network. Yeah, 2002 to present. There you go. 
I like that you often have a bigger picture take on the issues of our time. And I think here this year, with a lot of tension on things like AI, of course, the, the perennial the AI Davos. Hasn't it's it? the AI Davos. Uh, but there is always the perennial favorite of climate change. And of course, you know, we can't ignore the fact that there are two horrible wars underway. So a lot of big stress in the world. Yeah. Um, and so I thought you and I could like, because we could try to find a way to like pull this together in the context of what our audience cares about, you know, blockchain, you know, provenance, verifiable Web3. data, Web3, et cetera. And to me, it's, it feels as if, you know, as the world is just becoming more and more digitized, every aspect of our life, mm. uh, essentially producing this digital data, that that data becomes the most powerful aspect of how we address all these risks and, and, and so forth. Because at the end of the day, it's the information that we need to be able to coordinate on these things. And so, like, concern over AI, you know, essentially maybe destroying humanity or something, the coordination around climate change, the need to have reliable data around that sort of stuff, and of course, just the need for some sort of truthful basis around which we can address some of these huge conflicts. How does it all come together? Well, I, you know, I think we're kind of at the end now, and so I've had, like you, a hundred conversations, and so certain things start to weave together and sort of pop out. So I'd say that there's a few things that are kind of beginning to stand out for me, and conversations like this help me distill it. But one of the things when you talk about the data front. I've heard about everything from like essentially digital soil to the need for the blockchain to be the rails for AI to uh, the fact that with the upcoming election cycle, uh, we are going to probably have a major problem if we don't figure out how to disintermediate uh, fake news through something like blockchain. So I feel like Web3 is coming into its own mm -hmm. in this AI world that's emerging around us. So to start with the soil. So I was in an agricultural discussion on Brazil today. And there's a group in there that were talking about the fact that they're measuring through satellites the soil of small farmer plots across Brazil. Hmm. And so they're creating this like kind of digital archive of soil and they're giving soil identity. So imagine like a small farmer plot and they can then measure. But then they're working with like Bayer and all these other companies who have different farming or ag related um, perspectives. Hmm. And they're layering that data on top of this particular hmm. patch of land to create a kind of soil profile in a way. Wow. And as you do that, you can then start to understand how the soil is drying out or where a forest fire might occur or, you know, whatever else. And so suddenly I'm like, oh my God, we're even like digitizing the dirt. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which, which in a positive way, it sounds like it's one of those, one of those stories. Like, Look how cool this thing yeah, can be. Like, yeah. imagine that. You could just, just think of the, the capacity to actually feed exactly. the world. Exactly. Like imagine being able to like predict a forest fire two weeks before or, it happens. Or manage the droughts in appropriately for the, you know, yeah. managing the interests of the farmers in California with the water needs yeah. of, of, of Los Angeles. So like starting from the optimistic, you right. know, yeah. that's yeah. like, okay, wow, this stuff is working and it's really great for us. And then, you know, on the, on the middle thing, like AI on rails, right? So we all know that AI can hallucinate and we're all mm -hmm. trying to think about ways to make AI better. But one of the things that I've heard over and over again is the idea that AI will be the car that runs on the rails of blockchain because you need transparency and you need verifiability for good AI. And so thinking about um, the merger of blockchain and AI has definitely been a sub-theme, especially for those of us working in Web3. Mm -hmm. For me personally, one thing I'd really like to kind of populate from this Davos is what I'm calling surf, surf, surf. So if I can take a second to explain that, yeah, I think it's actually really cool. kind of fun. Cool. Me and Manveen, our innovation <laughs> editor, came up with this uh, the other day. So, you know, Web1, somebody said, that's the read internet. Like, we surfed the internet. Yep. S-U-R-F. Uh -huh. Okay? Web2 has been a write internet. We're okay. posting, we're sharing, we're writing, but we're surfing the internet. S-E-R-F. 
because we're all making money for seven oligarchs, right? And the another word that came out this week was technogarchs. So like these kind of technical oligarchs. You, you, you realize you just accidentally made a, a shameless plug for my book because this is the entire structure of our biggest fight. We talk about the feudal, the digital feudalism that we live yeah. in. Yeah. So right now, Web 2 is we're surfing the internet, but wow. it's S-E-R-F. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I kind of, somebody said, and I was, of course, I'm like, okay, so Web 3, we've got to have a new surf, sure. right? So we're, so we came up with S-I-R-F. Okay. Web 3 should be about surfing the internet and I should be in charge. I should be sovereign, so I should be sovereign, independent, responsible, and friendly. And if we can make Web3 surfing S-I-R-F, uh, I think that would be a really great outcome. And this all came from somebody else at Davos was like, hey, the world is moving so fast, we need new words. Like, we need new words to describe the things that are happening to us and around us. And, you know, one of the great benefits of English is that it allows us to invent and mash words yeah, together, yeah, right? Very, very so we can language. have technogarchs yeah. and we can have surfing. Yeah. But so I'm all about now, you know, creating that surfing with an I. And, you know, it fits very well with our objectives within Hub Culture of data ownership, of digital identity, of, you know, responsible and friendly interaction with the rest of our community. So I think for Hub, we're feeling really good. Global crypto regulation, the disruptive power of AI, the rise of tokenization. Consensus is the one event where experts in digital assets, blockchain, and related topics convene to talk about the ideas shaping our digital future. Join developers, investors, founders, brands, policymakers, and plenty more in Austin, Texas from May 29 to 31. The 10th annual Consensus is curated by Coindesk to feature the industry's most sought-after speakers unparalleled networking opportunities, and unforgettable experiences. Take 15% off registration with the code MRP15. Register now at consensus.coindesk.com. I'm excited to share with you that our biggest fight, Reclaiming Liberty, Humanity, and Dignity in the Digital Age, a book I co-authored with Project Liberty founder Frank McCourt, will be released on March 12 and is now available for pre-order. Our biggest fight is a manifesto on the need to fix a severely broken internet with a set of workable solutions for all of us to follow. It's a hopeful book, exploring the big opportunities for innovation and prosperity that technology can bring if it's designed with humans in mind. But it's also an urgent call to action. We must get this right for society now, before it's too late. Find the link to the book in the show notes. Certainly, when it comes to the AI piece of this and the intersection of blockchain, same feeling that I had, like, lots and lots of discussions around this and seeing as if this, this could be the Uber use case that finally people recognize. Because there yeah. really is no other well, way. Well, it's going to be necessary. Exactly. There's just literally no other way other than some sort of distributed ledger to actually be able to sort of give value and verification to that data. Now... The thing is, like, well, and can we just finalize that third point? Because I think it's absolutely urgent now. Yeah. Because we're hitting an election cycle. There are four billion people going through an election cycle this year. Every every and like Putin in March, most of Europe, and then of course the United States. And so, how we come out of this election cycle in a world where we suddenly have disinformation and you know, literally, like the ability I can fake you now and I can make you say anything I want with just two minutes on the web. I don't know how that's going to affect the cycle, but if we don't figure out really quickly some way to authenticate what's true and what's not, and blockchain is really the only way to do that, 
you know, I think we're in for a really rough election cycle. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is. There's an urgency to this without a doubt. But it's, it, at the same time, like, everyone's sort of recognizing the risks and the threats. And that's just the perennial kind of, you know, conversations that happen at places like the World Economic Forum. But, you know, I still feel like these sorts of conversations are still very isolated to those of us who are in this space, right? Like, is it resonating with others? And, and also, in some respects, should it, right? Because yeah, I was talking to somebody today, Jonathan, Jonathan Dothan from uh, Starling Labs, and he was saying, look, if, if the government starts to mandate aspects of blockchain verification, then it starts to become co-opted in ways that could actually be very negative, Spe- specifically if they are applying standards that only serve their surveillance interests, right? Yeah. So it has to almost be an organic revolution almost, right? Well, I mean, I think we have to, I mean, we have a responsibility as people building tech to build the right tech. And if we don't build the right tech, we're going to pay the price because government and regulation will fill the gap, right? So we could argue that in the early days of Web 2, we had enough, good enough tech that regulators weren't able to get their heads around it. And look what happened. Like a lot happened. Um, one of the things David Schreier from Imperial College talked to me about this week was um, the idea of flash growth. We've heard about flash crashes, like in the financial markets, but flash growth is actually now an interesting thing. And that tied together with another conversation that I had with a national security expert about um, the current conflicts. So, okay, web internet mm-hmm. took seven years to get to 100 million users. Chad GPT took 100 days to get to 100 million users. Threads yeah. took five days. Five days yeah. But here's the other crazy thing. If you look at the disinformation cycle of the war between Gaza and Israel, that took hours. Yeah. And nobody's really conflated that disinformation cycle that happened with the right. war to that same like arc. But yeah. it's like, wow, the world's opinion can change in, in a heartbeat now. And the ability for billions and billions of people to know some piece of information or to form an opinion has radically changed. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we are literally living in a real-time global information world right now. And in a way, all bets are off. And so I think the impacts of how that we, haven't we, even begun like it's just, to be I think this is the realized. greatest challenge of what is, is speed. Speed is probably, uh, and, and time, the idea that it may even run out, right? That feels to me like the biggest threat of all. It's just like, it, can we keep up? I don't can, think can we society? can. I mean, I, we're, we're going to have to. Right. But I think that the speed of it is going so fast that at some point, things are going to happen whether we like them or not. And, you know, you talk to government people, most government people I know, they're absolutely reactive. Mm-hmm. Like, you, they don't do anything unless they have to do anything because they're already busy enough doing whatever they're trying to do. And, you know, in the U.S. in particular, you have this logjam on the political front and this massive bifurcation. And so there is this question about which bifurcation is going to win instead of looking at how do we actually come together to move things forward. Like, let us hope that something emerges that allows us to move forward together in a positive way, and maybe we can flash scale that. You know, I, I, it's kind of my only hope. It's interesting as well, like thinking about what government's role in this, in, in some respects, it is to get out of the way. That's sort of antithetical to the way that a classic bureaucrat well, thinks, Well, luckily right? for like, most of us, governments are too slow. Like, they're already far outdated, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, the reality is, is I think we're going to see AI governance. We had a discussion about who will be the first political candidate to pledge allegiance to an AI, right? And then that AI could have real-time voting from the constituency, and you could actually have real-time, constant, everyday voting for everything. And who would, would people vote for that candidate? I think a lot of people would vote for that candidate. So imagine like a technical interface between the government and the citizenry that's hopefully, you know, populated and, and informed by the citizenry. You then have to be careful about like the tyranny of the masses. Yeah. Because sometimes 
Particularly, you know, if it's all, particularly if it's all digitized. It's all it's open to bots and everything else, right? Well, so, I mean, and that's like a whole other layer. Yeah. And then obviously manipulation. The other thing that's been really riding on my mind is not very good news, but it is definitely this sense of the conflicts. The connection between what's happening in the Middle East and Ukraine is not accidental. And there's a lot of evidence that it also extends to Asia Pacific. And there are certain conflict points that could emerge in Asia Pacific that if all tied together would be very bad news for especially the U.S. and the West. The other thing that I think is riding large is the expansion of BRICS. And, you know, this really gets back to crypto. Yeah. But if there is a BRIC CBDC, right. the U.S. is in very big trouble. Because if you have a credible alternative to the dollar for global yeah. trade, that would have a big impact on the ability of the U.S. to issue debt, which would then hmm. cause hyperinflation in the U.S. Wow. Yeah, no, exactly. The, the, the end of, of dollar hegemony would be, a, would be a major threat. But I've often thought that the, the thing that the United States should do if it wants to maintain that incredibly privileged position that it has is to lean into soft power of, of an open system, like lean into what they did in the 90s with the 1990s yeah. Telecom Act and everything else and say, hey, our dollar, unlike, say, China's you know, surveillance uh, yuan, is in fact something that is open. Uh, it is, in fact, privacy preserving. It's all these things that a Chinese or any authoritarian state could never do. And it's it, our only it, hope. It is, right? Uh, it but really are you is. not hearing anyone in Washington? I know, they don't right? get it. I mean, they just don't get it. And the reality is, is because government is so slow and they don't get it, the opportunity, the opportunity window is closing. Like we've been in ourselves with various organizations. I was on the Fed task force for, you know, four years. And I think within the Fed, they get it. But within Congress, they don't get it, yeah, right? The yeah. Fed gets what's at stake. And I think that, you know, there are a lot of internal talks about the ways that um, the Fed can adapt to the emerging world. But the problem is, is Congress mm. and certain players across the political sphere, because we're a democracy, it just means slower movement. And it means a lot of fighting and yelling with like non-relevant special interests. And there's a lot at stake. We need to be able to move better and faster. One last topic I want to just lean into here. I think Hub Culture is a great institution to, to think about this. And that is like the intersection between what we might call IRL, real life, human yeah. beings, physical existence, yeah. and the digital one, right? Yeah. Because I was chatting with a professor of law who really dives into the emerging technologies and, and how the legal issues around human rights and so forth emerge. And she was talking about the development of uh, certain technologies that have some sort of physical impact upon you to remind you. So she was talking specifically about if, if your data is being used in a certain way that is, is you know, monitoring you, or, you know, one way to remind you is like some haptic effect in your phone. Hmm. When you do something, so you get this sense. It's, it, there is this physical, muscular, you know, very f- human blood and flesh and blood sort of response. And what I find fascinating about that is like the idea that we, you know, we need to be able to understand that physical thing, right? And hub culture is interesting. You've got this, all this digital technology, but you have these geographic locations yeah. and everything else. The idea that we can bring everything back. And Sandy Pentland from MIT talks about the idea of data collectors. Sandy was a huge influence on a lot of our tech with yeah, Hub ID. Well, I, I, one of the things that Sandy was saying that was fascinating was like, what about if you can organize a data collective and so that we empower ourselves collectively in the same way that we have labor unions and things like that that would collectively empower people? Or for that matter, you know, guilds or trade associations. Uh, for companies, that if it's a data collective, that, we, that you would organize them around physical space. You know, because when you think about your local town, you worry, you worry about your fire department, you're going to worry about your police. You're not going to necessarily, yeah. you, know, you might worry about Gaza, but it's not going to be the primary thing that motivates that particular group of people. And so we might get back to thinking about what we should be doing rather than being corralled into these incredibly divisive, toxic conversations that are algorithmically yeah. driven. This is like very much what we're working on and have been working on. 
Uh, a lot of the tech that we have within Hub is things that sort of sit there and we build them and then they percolate and then four years later they become relevant. So one thing that I've heard a lot of talk about this week is the invisible web. So I think the web is going to disappear um, in terms of being screens and computers in front of us and it's going to be on walls and rooms and everywhere and we're going to be talking to it and listening to it. But the invisible web is coming. That's mm-hmm. number one. Number two, I think the next big thing is co-ops. So DAOs have been proven to be problematic for governance. So if you're a Web3 thinker, go look at co-ops because we've decided that co-ops are the way forward for the most important thing, which is solving for the commons. But co-ops actually legally and structurally do a really good job Hmm. of managing that. So we're looking at launching a co-op with a bunch of friends in the Web3 space in the coming year. Everybody throws IP into it Hmm. and then you develop, um, you know, hopefully transformation through that co-op. But the other thing is the commons. The biggest problem we have right now, and I've said this on stage in a number of places, is that we do not have a mathematically superior model for the commons relative to private business. And so the, the reality is, is that if you have, you know, 10 things and they're all equal and one gets a slight advantage and you're in a perfect market, that slight advantage will result in total control, like the oligarchs, right? And so we need a mathematically superior model for equitability. One of our principles we've been talking about at the Ice House is this new concept that started in New York and then went through Dubai with a cop at all the hubs of equitable sustainability. Hmm. Like it's not sustainable if it's not improving the equitable position of the society. Hmm. And so that should be a d- core definition of you sustainability going forward. Forward. Like, like algorithms, software, it has governance built into Just it. Just model. Gears. Like capitalism mm-hmm. in and of itself rewards like, you know, the slight advantage mm-hmm. yep. to the extent that you end up with an, a monopoly. Right. Like if left on so put a little bit of a foot on the scale to actually allow the commons, the, the sort of the broad public. Or we, need a, or we need a mathematical model that's so good at distributing the benefits okay. to the equitableness that, that everybody wins and it's mathematically more beneficial. Yeah. And I think the answer to that... A lot, of, a lot of folks in the Web3 space have been thinking about this for some time, like token economics and token right. design has always been thought yeah. of in some space. Like, how do you build governance into the behaviors of all the participants yeah. such that the collective gain is... Yeah. Is and, and I think we've been noodling this for a while, but I think the answer is you have to value the commons. Hmm. So these trees right here, they don't have any economic value right now, but they're super valuable. They're an externality. But if we could bring the trees and the value of the trees into the commons, then the commons benefit starts to outweigh the individual benefit enough that we can sort of balance that out and have a mathematically superior formula that allows us to have private capitalism, wealth generation, prosperity, like progress technologically, and still maintain the commons. Because the reality is, is that our society is geared towards destroying the commons. Like everything that is shared is either raped, pillaged, destroyed, burnt, or turned into, you know, an iPhone. And so we need to think about ways to preserve the commons, both like from an intellectual standpoint, from a social like governance standpoint, and from an environmental standpoint. And that gets us back to climate, right? Because we're on the last five to 10% of resources on everything. The fish are running out, the trees are burning down. Like we have to do something really urgently to figure out how to protect the commons so that we have grandchildren and great-grandchildren who live in a world that they can breathe in. I think that's a pretty good place to end. <laughs> I don't know. I, <laughs> that, that is, I that get a little bit wound up about this no, stuff. No, you do, but that's a great place to end. That is, that is really almost our calling, right? Like, yeah. what else on earth do you have as a responsibility as a human being other than to prepare yeah. or maintain something for the future yeah. generation? And I, I honestly think that is the great hope of Web3. That is the great hope of blockchain. That third web, right? Surf, I, but it's also about own, right? Mm-hmm. Read, write, own, yeah. right? Surf, surf, surf. That surfing in the now is going to be independent, 
sovereign, responsible. So yeah. you have a responsibility back to the commons and friendly. Like we should all be able to get along and have friends and party. Let's party. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. Good to see you again. All right. So again, you know, I think that was emblematic of the kinds of conversations we we were having, you and I both together and separately, uh, all over Promenade and all over Davos, and, and me even in, in Saint Moritz uh, prior to Davos. Um, and, and I do think it's a moment. And you know, one of the frustrations I have is that I feel like there's this sense that oh, all these Web three folks are now rushing into AI because it's the fad of the moment. And it's like, well, no, some are. I'm going to say some are for sure, and some are trying to build a brand around it. But but for those of us who've been in this space for some time certainly in my last role where my job was to look at intersectional technologies, right? Uh, we've known for a long time that this is this is the inevitable, it's partial solutioning to the point I think you, you made earlier, right? It's not a full solution. There is going to have to be some policy boundary and regulatory boundary, but it is so foolish if we do not look at technical options for addressing issues like bias, uh, like provenance, like all these things that have been real concerns in the AI ethics space for many years. And the reality is, back when these issues were first surfaced, I don't personally think that Web3 technologies were ready. But I do think that we are either at or very near the point to scale to solve mm -hmm. some of these kinds of problems. And this is actually happening in production. This is not just something we're talking about hypothetically. There are many examples of this yeah. happening already in real time. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was impressed. You know, Jonathan Dotan from right, you know, Starling yeah. Lab, Equity Lab, I think is now called, uh, working with um, Hedera. I thought that was a really interesting, Very interesting. Uh, provenance and tracking solution they had in there. You know, David Johnson and, and Eric Voorhees, who were working with uh, yeah. Beth Jezos on this Morpheus uh, decentralized AI concept, were out sort of touting it. You know, interesting setting for those guys to be in Davos doing so. And then there's like people looking at deep fake solutions as well, which is sort of, of course has suddenly been thrust into prominence by the one and only Taylor Swift, who like nobody else in this world can bring an issue into prominence. Her own economy. She has her There's own economy. Like, uh, porn images that, that have been out there and got yeah. people naturally right. very upset. So like, it's really becoming vitally important that we address it. Um, and, and you're right. This is actually, what I find interesting is that um, we, yes, those of us who've been thinking about this for some time have been talking about it. And in some respects, we weren't talking about AI per se. We were saying that we have these algorithmic systems, these platforms, these technologies that really need to be able to get some handle around where the data is coming from so that we can sort of bring ownership of this process to the individuals who are part of that, as opposed to us all being, to Stan's colorful reference, serfs, serfs of, yes. of those oligarchs that run, run the system, right? Well, and we were so, talking about data. We've been talking about data. And and you can't have AI without data, right? Data is right. The I think data is AI. exactly. So, it. I think this is a, in, in a way it's like it's fundamental. Really AI is the application that brings it all into focus and gives yeah. you something to really get worried about. But it's not really about intersection blockchain. It's about what we always said, which is data is a form of value. It's like a, a it's the currency of the internet, and therefore yes. it should be treated with all the same requirements that the inventor of Bitcoin, Satoshi, brought to the idea of digital money. Right? That yeah. we need a system how we can trustfully exchange across a decentralized architecture this very important measure of value which is data data is the currency the commodity whatever you want to call it of this new age and if ais are going to be centralized and controlled by the same companies by the way that you know brought us watching this in real time all the money that's going into this space yeah you know, it is it, it is all the very same companies. Why? Because they have the data, because they've captured it from us through a Web yes. two centralizing 
model that we now know has been extremely harmful to society. Yeah. Well, it's always been about the data, right? And, and when I was at the forum, we did a big project talking about harm reduction with data. Uh, and that really, at the end of it, the conclusion was it's self-sovereignty. That is the best mm -hmm. way to reduce harms is to have ownership of data held by an individual or a conglomerate or an AI agent or whatever it is, right? There's different interfaces. But at the end of the day, to fundamentally have the control over data be self-sovereign is the single biggest fix you can make. It does rely a lot on individuals, but it doesn't have to now that we have the concept of an AI agent that you can code mm -hmm. and program to do the things that you want it to do. But it is definitely not the case that ceding control over all that data to a corporate overlord, you know, <laughs> via a platform is the answer. That's clearly not the answer. Yeah. And to your point, I mean, I think it's unfortunate that we've had so much infighting in the what I'll call, I'll continue to call the Web3 space to your point over the years, right? It's, it's unfortunate because we could have made advances in the narrative around this and its utility and value around data. But because there was so much infighting or pointing of fingers or whatnot by various parties about this in the context of financial services, which, you know, is, is, is again, as we talked, this is such a narrow frame on what Web3 is about. But given that, you know, I do think that we lost some of the ability to make the case more strongly that this is the solutioning that it can be. Because again, now it looks as if for the outside view, people are just jumping on the bandwagon and like, we had yeah. the Tensor guys on, right? Talking about this for a yeah. long time. You've got Near Protocol, which the founder of well, Near is an AI. Again, is an AI, exactly. Yeah. So this connection is historic. It goes back almost a decade. Yeah. And even thinking about cryptography, so much of that was applicable to data. It's about data at the end of the day. Data, data, data. Yeah. yeah. Here's the thing that I would love to see, again, in an ideal world, because I'm not holding my breath for it, but the, the WEF would champion. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that is this idea that breaking data up uh, and giving people sovereignty over that data, uh, agency is the word that Frank and I use a lot in the yeah. book, that you have control over your life and your data is you. It's, it's a reflection of who you, in the digital age, it's a reflection of your personhood, is not only important from what we're saying as a human rights issue, right? This is an abuse of your rights. Yeah. But actually, the history of digital property rights, the history of how innovation happens should mean that this would actually be an explosion of prosperity and wealth, right? So, so this idea that you concentrate all the control of the data, which is the, which is the, the, the key asset for how you unlock wealth in this, in this current age, in the hands of just five big companies, yeah. is going to lead to a much less dynamic and therefore less prosperous economy than one in which it's spread out wide, right? Yeah. So this should be every company from frigging Walmart to Salesforce to Mesk should be out there going, whoa, 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 whoa. I shouldn't be having to depend upon Amazon. I shouldn't be having to ask Amazon all the time for data about my customers. Yeah. I'm going to be much more creative with my business models, with my innovation, my ideas, everything, if I'm able to get that data for myself and control it and make decisions on my own, on, on own basis, yeah. right? You know, and we know this from what happened with the internet. And, you know, when we opened up the telecom lines and, and we just explosion of innovation that happened in that environment. And we've seen it from throughout history, every time that digital property, oh, sorry, rather property rights yeah. generally have been moved to a new class of person from, you know, what happened in China to the, you know, well, backwards to the you know, invention of the limited stock company in, in Holland, you, you name it. There's been these moments when property rights get expanded, when we just see all this growth happen. So I'd love to see all of the members of the WEF like step in and go, you know what? This is cool. We should get into this because it's going to give us new opportunities. We're not no longer beholden to these intermediaries. And I feel like 
steal that conversation. Oh no, we have to do it this way because we need to. We need the data, and Facebook's got the data. Yeah. And Facebook. I mean, so, so like, there's not this. Where's the expansive thinking around these concepts that used to be there, and you know, in the middle of the nineties? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I will say I haven't been there for some time now, but. When I was there, we definitely were talking about federated. I'm not asking you to go back. <laughs> no, I'm like, I don't know what you're trying to say, Michael. But um, you know, when I was there, this was a really pushing for this conversation to happen. And we, we made a lot of progress on it. And, and to be honest, I don't really know where it stands internally there. I do know that as governments become more isolationist, they're not foolish. They recognize the value of data. And so uh, we had a, pro- a project called uh, Data Free Flow with Trust. It's hilarious, I think. But mm. it was about like how, did, how can data move more freely, but with trust without ownership rights transferring. Right. And so that was, that was a project that we, you know, that I, that I oversaw and it was, it was a, yeah, it was a very powerful project. And, and multiple countries were very interested in that concept because they recognized full well. That was actually, I think that was the one, I should look back at this, was led by Bahrain because Bahrain understood the importance <laughs> of data crit- crucially. And they wanted to actually champion a new way of thinking about, about data. Uh, and it was, it was a very interesting experiment. So there was a lot of that work happening. I, again, I don't necessarily know wh- where that is now because that's beyond my, uh, I, I, my beyond my purview at this point, having been gone for so long. But you know, I think there is a recognition on the part of a lot of the more, let's say, benevolent Web two patriarchs, and they're almost all patriarchs, uh, that this is problematic, right? And not just because from a competitive perspective that they're losing out to the Amazons of the world but also because there is going to be a movement towards more of this ownership happening that's going to be led in part by governments. Uh, and I think it's, it's happening in the EU. So IDOS and things like that in the EU are, are talking about not just GDPR type privacy, like you should have the ability, you know, but also moving and shifting, I think, fairly rapidly towards this concept that ownership of data is, to your point. I don't know if they'd go all the way to say it's a human right. That's a whole frame on an international conversation that's very complicated. But certainly it's approximating, asymptotically approaching, if you will, that framing. And that is going to be a very powerful move because not unlike GDPR, whether we like it or not, we are all affected by that in terms of our notifications and whatnot. And, and California is, is often you know, um, uh, set to follow suit with some of the things that come out around data. Mm-hmm. So I do think it's a matter of time before you know, by hook or by crook, as it were, we do wind up in a world where this concept is more embedded in the policy environment. But like I say, yeah. the solution must involve some sort of, in my opinion, Web3 decentralized, open, permissionless, centralized network that allows for the tracking, the accountability, the things that we know this technology, and we've now stress tested this enough that we know this technology can do it. And my hope is, as I've said from the very beginning of when I took the role of CCI, is that we're not going to get so caught up in the financial services frame that we're going to make rules that then treat da- a unit of data like a unit of like a dollar. Because those are not the same. They're not the same thing. And the protections can be different. And we shouldn't apply that unbelievably high level of regulatory scrutiny and everything else to data that we apply to money. Uh, and I would even argue that the money frame is a little bit flawed at this point as well. So let's see. But that's certainly part of what I am. I am spending a, a lot of hours, <laughs> a lot of hours uh, looking globally at trying to uh, prevent so when you mentioned GDPR, I, I was thinking a little bit about Europe, and this came up in a panel that I was moderating. People were talking about what role for Europe, and it was interesting hearing uh, this person who was, you know, engaged in the European picture from a business perspective, but who had been worked with regulators quite a lot, 
saying, oh, look, Europe is going to, as always, it gets left behind because it, it, it's sort of like it's trying to regulate for an economy that for a technology that it doesn't own. Mm-hmm. Right? And it was framing things, which I think is a web two way of thinking. Yes, the big five platforms are all American companies and therefore there's this strange role that Europe plays, leading GDPR being a classic example of how to yeah, regulate yeah. something that is actually outside their, their, their purview. But in an open source tech mm-hmm. world, in a sort of crypto web three, is that even relevant anymore? And therefore, what role could Europe, Europe could potentially play a very interesting role? Like, I mean, GDPR, whether you like it or not, is the best blush we have of trying to deal with it from, from a privacy perspective, uh, you know, through regulation. And yes, it's annoying and imperfect, but it, the very fact that it did force others, you know, California included, to think hard about how to follow suit and were all affected by it was a demonstration, in fact, to Europe. Yeah, Mika and these yeah. other things. Like, here's a chance for you guys, right? Yeah. You know, what do you think well, about Well, like I just said, I mean, don't discount Europe. You know, I, I think it's interesting yeah. because we've talked about this too. You know, the market is only temporarily, you know, the global north, right? I mean, it, just demographics alone, the markets are rapidly shifting to the south. And uh, and young, younger populations, more digital native populations, you know, et cetera. Um, internet penetration, mobile penetration is no longer the issue that it used to be even a few years, about, uh, years ago, right? The pandemic accelerated, ironically, a lot of that penetration. So I do think, you know, the things that come out of Europe, to the extent that they trickle down into MENA, uh, I think are, are going to be more powerful. If they remain just in Europe, I mean, there's just a reality around the market there, right? Which is just also factual. And and I do think first mover isn't always, you know, last mover isn't always most powerful mover. Uh, in GDPR, I think no. it was so revelatory. And because, again, because data does this idea of data free flow with trust, that project I mentioned, right? The idea that people are very interested, both individuals, both at the consumer level and a business level in having unfettered data movement, but they want to have some rules around that data and not just have it be owned by every intermediary that touches it, right? I think there is something to be said for rules that are within that frame. And even if Europe doesn't get it quite right, which the first mover is never going to get it quite right because there are things you just don't know. Regardless, I think landing the concept, like landing the frame of the conversation, that's what GDPR did, right? It wasn't even so much that the Mm -hmm. law itself is great or not great or whatnot. It's definitely pros and cons. And as somebody who had to think about implementing it, let me tell you, lots of pros and cons, lots of cons too. But nevertheless, it really shifted the conversation. It really did. And I actually think that GDPR yeah. paved the way yeah, for a discussion it, about Web3 and about self-sovereignty. It, it codified these it really ideas did. that, really that the human being's role is something to be protected, that the privacy That's is right. important, that there is an abuse of power in That's this right. relationship that needs to be addressed, right? That in itself was very... Just uh, think about it, right? Because in the US, what do you have? The, the fight is all about antitrust and monopoly. That's not the same thing. That's not the same thing. Right. That's about breaking right. up power, yeah. not empowering. Whereas GDPR was about yeah. empowering people, yeah, much more than any antitrust. Yeah. Look, I'm not, antitrust is important, fine, whatever. But it's a very yeah. capitalist, you know, it's a very, it's a frame that you can't get too powerful as opposed to let us fundamentally re-examine the power structure around data, which is really what GDPR starts and paves the way to do. I'm hoping Matt Stoller is listening <laughs> here because he's a good well, antitrust guy. Matt, not about it. <laughs> yeah, fair <laughs> enough, Matt Stoller. Yeah, exactly, exactly. There are other ways, I guess, <laughs> as I would say. There are other tools in the toolkit besides the hammer of antitrust, which, again, is very right. American in its frame. It's a very American. It's also a reflection of, of the fact, again, that American power around this big Web 2 era is actually residing. So yes. There is this vehicle that they have because of the fact that there are American companies that they can That's deal right. with, right? But at the same time, I always felt like, you know, when, when, you know, when GDPR was being drafted and these and various other laws and also lawsuits, there was action yeah, taken, you know, you get these amicus briefs <laughs> filed in Brussels by the State Department on behalf of Meta and Google. I'm like, 
Are you kidding me? Like, they're trying to protect human beings. In fact, you're human beings, American citizens, yeah. right? What on earth are you doing representing them? Because, you know, that's the way that we think. American interest is a corporate interest, which is not very healthy in this particular well, environment. Well, you know, we have saying. to go back to Citizens United to, to get around that. There you go. Well, okay, you, you let me ring the Citizens right. United bell. You know I'm going to walk through that door. Don't go there, Sheila. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm back. Cut me off. Cut me off. Thank you all for listening to Money Reimagined. Uh, don't forget to subscribe. Give us a thumbs up or leave a review. We value your feedback. You can find the place to do so at podcast at coindesk.com, or rather that is the email address, podcast at coindesk.com. Make sure you use the subject line, Money Reimagined. We do look forward to hearing from you. Uh, we love your feedback and we love you listening. So continue doing that and we will see you, hear you, be with you in some way next week. Bye for now. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. 